how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Romans Part 1. Well, now, the best way to study the Bible, as I've been trying to tell you, is to study it book by book and to read a whole book right through, if you can, or at least spread it over a few days, but to read it straight through as a whole. The book is the unit of the Bible. It's a library of books, and there's such different kinds of books. Now, we're studying at the moment letters, and the letters are peculiar to the New Testament. There isn't, as far as I know, a letter in the Old Testament. They're all in the New, and most of them are by Paul. Now, even though letters were very expensive and difficult to send in the olden days, we've got quite a lot that have been dug up by archaeologists and discovered in libraries. We altogether have about 14,000 letters from those days, which is quite a lot. And when you compare all those letters with the ones we have in the Bible, some very interesting comparisons. The average length of a letter in those days was anywhere between 18 and 209 words. That's about the range, which is really quite short, but then when somebody has to carry it for hundreds of miles, you understand that the lighter it is, the easier. But Paul's are very much longer. There are one or two long letters from the ancient world. I've jotted down that Cicero wrote a letter of two and a half thousand words, which is his longest, and a man called Seneca wrote one just over four thousand words, which was an all-time record, except for Paul's letter to the Romans. (laughs) And that is seven thousand plus words. It's the longest letter we have from the ancient world, so it is a special letter. His average was about 1,300 words, but here's one of 7,000, so we've only got two talks of 40 minutes to try and open it up. What I'm trying to do in these talks is to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself and get the treasure out. I'm not trying to teach it for you, that's spoon-feeding. I'm trying to give you the keys so that you can say, ah, I think now I'll be able to read it for myself and understand what it's getting at what the writer's intending me to receive. Now, the letter is also unusual for a number of other reasons. There's a a very long opening greeting, but there's an even much longer closing greeting. There's a whole chapter that's nothing but people sending their love. Whole long list. It is highly unusual to spend such a long bit of a letter just passing on greetings from friends to friends. Why does Paul do that? And then when you read the letter, it reads more like a lecture than a letter. It's not a kind of chatty letter that you'd write to someone telling them about the wife and kids and everything. It's it's really a lecture. And it's even more than a lecture because you feel that through it, Paul is arguing with people. It's a kind of dialogue. He's constantly quoting an objection from a heckler and then answering the objection. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. There's a kind of conversation going on. So what, what's it all about? Well now, one other thing sets it apart from all the other letters we've got of Paul, and that is he's writing to a church he's never seen, a church he didn't found, a church he's had no personal contact with. Now Paul looked after his own churches very faithfully, 
but he didn't interfere with anybody else's work. So what's he doing writing the longest letter of all to a church he didn't start and that he's never visited? By the way, that explains why there are so many greetings. He's trying to establish himself in their eyes and saying, I know a lot of people you know, which is what you do when you write to someone you don't know. You try and scrape up an acquaintance and say, well, I'm a friend of so-and-so, you know? And uh, it's, it's just like when I say that I'm a pastor or a preacher to an unbeliever, they usually say, you know, my grandfather's gardener's wife's second cousin was in the, in the church. <laughs> they try and scrape up some kind of connection. You get the feeling Paul's doing that in that last chapter. Well now, he's written before he's had any personal relationship and yet it's obvious from the letter that he wants one, that he has a real ambition to meet them, to get to know them and for them to get to know him. So why does he have this ambition? He is intending to visit them. He says this, I'm hoping to come and see you. So why doesn't he wait till he goes? Why send a long letter, a very long letter, before he gets there? It could put them off, but he has a real purpose in it. Now this letter is much cooler than his others. When we studied Galatians, that's white hot. This is very cool. In fact, it's rather intellectual. It, as I've said, it's a lecture and it's, it's presented like a lecture. There are just one or two points where he gets a little warmed up, but on the whole, it's a very cool letter. So it's obviously quite different from his others. No hint of a crisis, no controversy going on, requiring his correction. Someone has said no scent of battle. I like that. In most of his letters there's the scent of battle, he's fighting something. None of that here, so why was it written? Is it perhaps a general circular letter that he just wants to circulate? Is it a printed sermon? Is it a tract? Then why does he address it to Rome in particular? That's the question we're going to wrestle with. Now, unfortunately, the Bible scholars give us too many answers. At least a dozen different answers have been given as to why this letter was ever written. But we can group them under three basic reasons. Some of them start with the writer and say the reason for writing is to be found in the writer. Some say no, the reason why it's written is to be found in both the writer and the readers and the relationship between them. And others say the reason for writing is to be found in the readers only. And these lead to three quite different approaches to the letter to Romans. I'm going to give you all three. I'll be very frank, the third one is mine as far as I can understand it but let's go through the others and under each of them there are two varieties of that answer so I'm going to give you six. I could have given you double that number but I'm just going to give you six main ones. This is the kind of thinking that you really need to do to get the background of a letter, especially when it's a bit obscure like Romans. Let's start with the writer. Can we find a reason for this letter in Paul? Well, the year is about AD 55. Paul has been preaching for 20 years. He's completed his mission in the Eastern Mediterranean. He has planted a strategic church in every major city in the Eastern Mediterranean. He's finished his work. Now, he hasn't evangelized everybody, but he's planted a church in every province that can do the evangelizing. So he's finished. That was his objective. And like a good Christian, he had a goal to go for and he knew when he reached it. 
I was speaking in Derby, was it? And I, I said, I wonder if your church has a goal for the next 12 months to reach. Because if you don't have a clear goal, you don't know if you've reached it. I said, hands up those who know what the goal of your church is. And a whole row of people down here put their hands up and nobody else did. So none of the churches had a goal, but this one had. And the pastor was sitting on the platform with me. He leapt off his chair and he said, I don't know what the goal of the church is. <laughs> and these were all his people. I said, I can tell you it's a change of pastor. <laughs> because when a whole congregation has a goal that the pastor knows nothing about, I can guess what it is. But you see, it is important for Christians to have goals so that they know when they've reached them. And Paul had a goal and he'd reached it. And the eastern end of the Mediterranean was established. And now he wanted to go to the west. So he's moving on. His final act in the east was to make a big collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had a famine by now and they were desperately poor. They were in recession, serious recession. So Paul, as his last act, taught the churches he'd founded to learn to share what they'd got and he made a collection of money for the poor believers in Jerusalem and he took it, as many Christians today are collecting for Romanian brethren and so on. So that was his final act. And he's got three months pause in Greece before he takes the money to Jerusalem. He's stuck in Greece, presumably the bad weather, he's got to wait for the uh, good weather for it to get a ship and he's stuck in Greece for three months. He's got time to write and he writes this long letter during that three months. And people have said, is he trying to get his message into written form? Because he can't go on preaching forever. When you get on in your ministry, you begin to think, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this forever, so I must get it into video or some permanent form. <laughs> and for him, he had no video, so he had to get it into writing. That's what they say. And they say what he's doing is he's leaving a permanent record of his gospel, the gospel he preached, so that people will have a permanent reference to what Paul preached when he preached the gospel. And certainly it begins, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and then he keeps talking about the gospel. So it could be that Paul is simply making a statement about his preaching, a last will and testament, his mature reflections. Doesn't know how much longer he can travel or speak and he's saying, this is my gospel, this is my manifesto, this is what I stand for a summary of his doctrine, if you like. Another form of this uh, theory is that he's doing more than that. He's putting down in written form the objections that he's had over the years to his gospel and the answers to those objections. And still people publish books today, answer to objections to the Christian faith, how to answer them. Josh McDowell is an outstanding example of someone who's published book after book on how to answer the questions people ask and the objections they make. And so some people say it's not just a statement of his gospel, it's also a statement of the arguments that he's encountered as he preached it and Paul dialogued a great deal and had question and answer and the answers he gave to the objections that he received. And they say that explains this letter. I don't think it does because there are certain features of it that really call into question this theory. Three questions in particular. Why just send this to Rome if it's his, the summary of his manifesto, his, his gospel? Why just send it to one church? Why not send it around? But he didn't. 
The second big objection is that this is not Paul's Gospel. Unfortunately, many Christians have made that mistake and they said if it's not in the Romans, it's not part of the Gospel. But there are a whole lot of things that are not here which are part of the Gospel Paul preached. There isn't a single thing about the Kingdom, yet we know that Paul preached the Kingdom of God. There are other things not here. Glaring omissions. There's nothing really about the resurrection of Jesus or His ascension. Nothing about the church. Nothing about communion. There's nothing about heaven or hell. There's nothing about repentance or even being born again. And there's an almost glaring absence of any mention of God being Father. Perhaps you've never noticed these things because once again when you read you should notice what's not there, but we tend not to do that. When you listen to a preacher, always notice what he doesn't preach about. That'll tell you as much about that preacher as what he does tell you about. So these gaps tell us that this is not a summary of Paul's preaching. This is not the whole Gospel and those who build their Gospel preaching on Paul's letter to the Romans are going to be deficient in a number of those areas. And the third reason why I can't believe that this is why he's writing is that chapters 9 to 11 don't fit either of these two things. Do you know that little bit in the middle, chapters 9 to 11, where Paul lays bare his heart for the Jewish people and says, I want to tell you how I feel about them. He says, I'd go to hell if it would get them to heaven. Now what's all that about? That's nothing to do with the gospel he preaches and unfortunately the scholars who tell us this is why he wrote always treat chapters 9 to 11 as a parenthesis that's not really part of it. And I was taken through Romans when I studied at Cambridge by a brilliant Bible teacher to whom I owe a great deal. You'll be astonished when I give you his name. John A.T. Robinson, the Bishop of Woolwich. And you know, when he was at Cambridge in my day, my day, it sounds old that, doesn't it? But in my day, he was one of the finest Bible teachers in the country, which he owed to an uncle called J. Armitage Robinson, who in the last century was a fine Bible teacher. Then I'm afraid when he became bishop, he just went to pieces and he wrote honours to God and became famous as a destroyer of the faith. Thank God in his later years, he went back to Cambridge and went back to the Bible and recovered his faith in God's Word. But he taught me Romans, but he only taught me Romans 1 to 8. And he said, we stop there because the rest is not really part of it. Now, isn't that strange? Because Paul didn't divide his letters into chapters and he went straight on from Romans 8 to Romans 9 and he went straight on from Romans 11 to Romans 12. There's no break at all. Just listen to the continuity at the end of Romans Eight, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But what about the Jews? Didn't God cut them off? No. See the continuity? And then chapter 11 finishes with a glorious ascription of praise to the mercy of God. His mercy, His mercy. And then immediately in chapter 12 he says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. These chapter divisions have really damaged the Word of God. Paul didn't divide up his letter into chapters, he just wrote straight through 
and there's a continuity which this theory does not notice. It says Romans 1 to 8 is the gospel, 9 to 11 are a parenthesis which he's just added. They're not, actually they're the key to the whole letter. Let's look at the second theory. This theory starts with the relationship between the writer and the readers, between Paul and Rome, and says there must be a reason why Paul sent all this to Rome. What was there about Rome that elicited this letter from Paul? Why did he write it before he went? And the two theories that are given are these. First of all, it was the capital of the Roman Empire and Paul always wanted to plant a church in a strategic city and of all the cities this was the most strategic and Paul would want to have a hand in the church in the capital of the Gentile Empire. So he wants to get in there and he wants to help the church. That's fully understandable. All roads led to Rome. Do you know in the old days when we used to have telegraph poles, do you remember those? some of you, when the telephone wires were all above ground and fibre optics hadn't been heard of, every telegraph pole in Britain, the cross pieces, the four or five arms at the top, were always on the London side of the pole. Did you know that? They always pointed to London. So wherever you were in the country, if you wanted to know where London was, just look at the nearest telegraph pole and it pointed to London. In the same way all roads pointed to Rome and every road Paul had travelled, if he'd stayed on that road, he'd have got to Rome sooner or later. And that was clearly on his heart. I want to get into that strategic capital, into the metropolis and really help to establish the work. Well, I'm certain there's an element of truth in that and it would mean that he's writing a letter of introduction to them, of um, self-revelation to them so they could get to know him, of recommendation to them. Instead of asking someone else to write to them on his behalf, he writes on his own behalf. Paul wasn't above doing that. They may have heard that he was a controversial preacher. He may have got that reaction many times, well you've given us something to think about. So he's writing the letter to show them he's not a controversial preacher, that he preaches the gospel that they've already heard and he's sending a sample sermon to them. Well, it's an interesting theory. I don't think it fits the bill yet. But this is one that could get us nearer to the truth. Rome, for Paul, would be the gateway to the West, to Spain. And now that he's evangelised the eastern half of the Mediterranean and wants to go west, he feels, I must have a new base that's nearer to my field. You see, Jerusalem was the first base, then Antioch was the second. But Antioch's going to be an awful long way from Spain and so he's seeking a new base and he's seeing them as the gateway to the west and he only plans to visit them. He says, I'm not going to stay with you, I'm only visiting and then I want you to send me on my way to Spain. So is that why he wrote? To get a new base for the western half of the Mediterranean? Possibly. Seeking their support and confidence? Possibly but I still don't think this explains what he's put in the letter. So let's go a little further. There may be elements of truth in these, let me say straight away, there's an element of truth in all this, but it's not the whole truth. Both of these theories are assuming that Paul is trying to get something from the readers for himself. But in fact he doesn't do that, he's wanting to give to them, not to get anything from them. 
He says, I want to minister to you. I want to come and give you another gift. There's a second reason. This still doesn't explain those funny chapters in the middle, 9 to 11, where he's talking about Israel so much. Why should he mention that if he's just wanting their support for his missionary work in the West? Those chapters, which are a problem to all these theories, become actually the key down here and the most important part of the letter, as we shall see. Nor does it actually, these theories, nor do they explain chapters 12 to 16, which are very practical about how to live it out. And they deal with only three or four rather unusual problems. Why would Paul not give a general talk about Christian ethics and behaviour? Why does he single out just three or four peculiar practical problems? Well, I hope I've got you all puzzled. You're looking tired and you're looking a bit confused. <laughs> Stay with it, we're nearly there. Let's come now to approaching this letter from the point of view of Rome. In other words, to say what was the need in Rome for this letter? Not was what was Paul's idea in writing it, or Paul's hope the result would be, but what was the situation in Rome that needed everything Paul says? Because then I feel we've got the key to unlock it. What was the situation? Well, the situation was both external and internal. The city of Rome is the external situation and that comes through in the letter again and again. If you read Romans 1, it reads like a Sunday newspaper published in the city of Rome. The things that are going on, for example, Romans 1 is one of the passages in the Bible that deals with homosexuality in both men and women. Now why does it do that? Because Rome was a hotbed of it. There's something strangely relevant about this. London is becoming rapidly the same. Now, what was going on in Rome was that out of the first 15 Roman emperors, 14 were practicing gays. And if that was the emperor, can you imagine what the court was like? And of course the whole metropolis. And Paul deals with a lot of the situation of Rome. It has a strangely modern ring to it. He deals with the outbreak of antisocial behaviour, of children disobedient to parents, of people throwing away law and order, of uncontrollable violence and crime. It's a remarkable picture of the ancient capital city of the empire and it was a pretty rough picture that we get in Romans 1. And some of the problems that come up later in the area reflect only too easily the political and social scene. For one thing, everybody was into tax evasion in Rome. You couldn't get the poll tax collected. By the way, you realise there's nothing new about poll tax. Do you realise Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem but for the poll tax? We should just have a little Christian attitude to these things that rather changes the feel. That's how the Saviour came to be born there because of the poll tax that they suddenly thought up. So it can do good. But you see, that a real problem. they had a real problem collecting it and everybody was into moonlighting and, you know, fiddling your tax returns. And there in Romans 13, now you Christians pay your taxes. See? 
So when you read through, there is a real reflection of the political and social scene in the city of Rome at that time. So Paul is trying to meet their needs in that environment, trying to help them to see that environment. He's ministering to them already before he's got there. And I think the reason he tried to do this, or did do it, was because he wasn't sure whether he'd get there. See, he knew he was going to be arrested and put on trial. Holy Spirit had revealed all that to him already. He doesn't know whether he'll be able to achieve his ambition and preach in Rome. So he says, right, I'm going to preach before I get there. And he seeks to match his words to their situation in this city of vice and crime and lawlessness. And he says, the gospel is the answer to this situation. He said, I'm not ashamed of it. You know, years ago, I went to Rome, 1947 to be precise, and I was 17, so you can now do your mathematics. And I went to the city of Rome, and I had a day on my own there, and I decided to walk down the Appian Way. And I walked miles down the Appian Way, past the catacombs where the early Christians worshipped down below ground. And then I turned around and I walked back into the city, and I came up to the hill, and you breast the hill, and you see laid before you Rome. It's a tremendous city. And I looked down at the stones at my feet. They were the very stones that were there in Paul's day. The original stones of the Appian Way are still there. Grey paving stones. And I looked down and I thought, I'm standing, the road's only about ten feet wide, I'm standing on the very stones that saw the feet of Paul. And I thought of him coming, chained between two Roman soldiers, walking up that road. I said, what were you thinking, Paul, when you came over this hill and saw this vast metropolis, saw all the buildings, the Roman Forum, the Colosseum? When you saw all that, what did you think? And into my mind came these words straight away, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it's power. It's the power of God for every believer. And I just got the sense when he was, saw the metropolis for the first time, he was so impressed with the might of Rome, yet he said, I'm not going to be embarrassed. I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I've got dynamite in me <laughs> that can blow this apart. And marched into the city of Rome with his gospel in his heart. Well, I think he sent it on ahead because of, of Rome. And his message there is, don't let the sea get into the lifeboat. The lifeboat's got to be in the sea, but when the sea gets in the lifeboat, you're in trouble. The church must be in the world, but when the world gets into the church, it sinks. Can't save anybody. And there's a real thread running through the letter of ministering to Christians who have to live in this city riddled with vice and crime and violence. And it's a message for us too, but I don't think we've reached the heart of it even yet. I think the real reason he wrote was internal to the church, not the state of the city of Rome, but the state of the church. And we know enough about the history of the church in Rome to know exactly what that problem was. There, there was a crisis, there was a problem, and this is what it was and how it arose. Now we don't know who founded the church in Rome, I haven't a clue, I can't tell you. I do know that there were people from Rome in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, it says, visitors from Rome. And I've no doubt that some of them were converted that day among the 3,000 baptisms. 
and they must have been the first to carry back the gospel back to their home in Rome because there was a, a colony, a ghetto unfortunately, a ghetto of 40,000 Jews in Rome at that time. Already there were scattered Jews all around the Mediterranean, 40,000 of them in the city. And no doubt the first Roman church was Jewish and began in that ghetto with Hebrew believers in Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. And so for the first chapter in its life, the church was entirely Jewish and it grew and no doubt was uh, fostered by evangelism among Jewish merchants and traders always coming in and out of the city. Now then, then came an emperor called Claudius, I Claudius. You've seen the play on television, uh, Jacoby? Derek Jacobi played the part of I, Claudius. Well now Claudius was anti-Jewish and he watched them to make, find an excuse to throw them out of Rome and he says there was a disturbance among the Jews over a person called Crestus. Crestus. And that could easily be Christus but he didn't quite get it right. I think it was. And there was a riot in the Jewish ghetto between the Crestus followers and the Jews. Now that's what happened everywhere Paul went. The Jews were the real enemies of the Gospel and therefore in Rome, now in the Jewish ghetto, there's a riot about the followers of Crestus. Christus. And Claudius says, out! all of you Jews out, you can't live in peace among yourselves, I won't have you in Rome and 40,000 Jews had to leave Rome in the year AD, what? I can't even remember and I haven't got it down so I can't tell you, you'll have to work it out for yourselves. And the Jews were expelled. Among them was a Jewish couple called Aquila and Priscilla. That name strike a chord and in in Acts chapter 18 it says that Paul met up with Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth because they'd been turned out of Rome by Claudius. So it all hangs together. But by this time the Christian church in Rome had a few Gentile members and suddenly the church in Rome shrank from a large Jewish church to a small Gentile one. But then it grew and those few Gentiles evangelized Gentiles so that now we had instead of an almost entirely Jewish church in Rome, an almost entirely Gentile church. And then Claudius died and the next emperor said, you Jews can all come back, you're good for business, which is true and he wasn't the last uh, ruler to invite Jews in to help the financial situation and all the Jews came flooding back including the Jewish believers. But now the Gentiles were running the church. Now do you begin to sense the crisis? The Jewish believers have come back and lo and behold they're not very welcome and the Gentile believers are in charge. It's happened before and it's happened since and I'm afraid it'll go on happening and people have to leave and they come back and try and integrate again. It's not easy to reintegrate into a fellowship, is it? Maybe some of you know that. Well that was the problem and now there was tension between the Jewish and Gentile believers inside the church.
Now I believe we've got to the key that opens Romans for you. Everything Paul says is to get those two groups back into one fellowship. And when you look through the letter, you find that almost every part of it is dealing with that situation. He talks about sin first, and he talks about the sin in the city of Rome, and then he says, now you, and he says, Gentiles are sinners, Jews are sinners. Let's begin right there. You're all equal sinners before God. Jews are no better than Gentiles, Gentiles no better than Jews. You're all sinners. And then he moves on to justification, how we get right with God. And he says, we're all justified by faith, whether we're Jews or Gentiles. And as he goes through the letter, he's always saying, Jews and Gentiles are the same. We're sinners the same, we need to be saved the same way. We're heading for the same heaven, we're saved by the same blood. Why are you arguing as to who's the more important, who was first here, who's more important than the other in God's sight? Then in chapter 6 and 7, he deals with the two peculiar problems that Gentiles have with the gospel and that Jews have with the gospel, and we have our old friends, legalism and license. And Gentiles were prone to go into license, and Jews were prone to go into legalism. So in chapter 6, he deals with license and tells them, don't you realize when you were baptized, you finished with sin, it has no more dominion over you. But in chapter 7, he deals with legalism, and he talks about his own past. He said, I tried to keep the law, but I couldn't keep the tenth law on coveting. And he said, you can't keep the law. So he's dealing with the license of the Gentiles, and the legalism of the Jews. And then he says in chapter 8, now I'm going to talk about the liberty of the Spirit. And we've got Galatians again in those three chapters. But he's dealing with Jew and Gentile, and he's saying you've both got problems. You're both sinners, you're both justified by faith, and you've both got problems with the Gospel. You Gentiles are going into license, shall we sin that grace may abound? You Jews are going back into legalism. And he said, you may serve the law of God with your mind, but you'll find another law within your members that serves the law of sin. And you, you finish up by saying, the good I want to do, I, I can't do. And the evil I don't want to do, I do. That's where legalism leaves you. In utter frustration and despair, wretched man that I am, what we need is the liberty of the Spirit that unites Jew and Gentile. Then he comes to chapters 9 to 11, which are so crucial to the whole letter. You see, Gentiles are prone to think like this, and we still do, and the majority of churches in this country think like this. We are the new Israel. We have replaced the Jewish people. They're out of God's purposes. We're in. And the whole of chapters 9 to 11 are to deal with that tension between Jew and Gentile. It is still having to be dealt with today. 9 to 11 must still be preached today because the churches of this country are into what is known as replacement theology, which is that God has washed his hands of the Jewish people and the church is now Israel. That is not true. The name Israel is never given to the church in the New Testament. 
And Paul has to say, do you think God is finished with the Jews? Just because they rejected him, do you think he rejected them? Never. And that whole section becomes the key to the book and the key to the relationships between Gentile and Jew. And he says this, we're up against this old question that I've raised earlier. He says, now you Gentiles, don't be proud because the Jews were cut off and you were grafted in. You too will be cut out if you do not continue in God's kindness. Strong word. Christians, you too will be cut off unless you continue in God's kindness. So don't boast over the Jews. And he says, I'll tell you a big secret. One day all Israel will be saved. They're going to be brought right back in and Jew and Gentile will be one olive tree for God. Now do you see how those chapters become the key to open up the whole thing? It's all about their internal problem of the Jewish church having been banished, the Gentiles coming back in, and now these two groups can't get on with each other. They're each saying, we're better than you. Jews are saying, we were the first, and the Gentiles are saying, oh, but you've been cut off and we've replaced you. And Paul says, no, no, no. Well, we'll call a halt there and have a welcome break. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.